Well, I invite you to turn in your Bible, if you have a Bible, to with you this morning, Matthew chapter 22. Um, And if you happen to not have a Bible, I'm just saying this, whether it's during the psalm reading or or during uh, the reading that I have now, I I don't want you to think of somehow yourself as a lesser person. Um, We just want to hear the word of God as well. And actually, in the early church, hardly anybody had a Bible. So um, we come together to read, open the Bible, read it, but also it's just as important to hear it. So with that, we're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Jesus is in the temple, and he is being verbally assaulted by the Pharisees, by the servants of Herod, by the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the time. And we've examined the first two verbal assaults last Sunday morning. And this morning we come to the third, beginning in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, What is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask that God would give us a right understanding of his word. Our Father, we ask for that now. We know that you are so kind that you had your revelation written down for us. You've protected this book, the Bible. You've given this word, which is inerrant, inspired, is profitable for teaching, rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. But we dare not presume that we can understand it in our own strength. So we pause to ask for the gracious ministry of your own spirit this morning helping the one who preaches, helping those who listen, that together we might know your son, Jesus. Serve him and worship him. And in so doing, love you, Father, as you have called us to. Amen. I was reminded this past week in interaction with a a man that I met and had an opportunity to speak with and at some length, and I was reminded not only of how 
violent this world is in terms of its speech with Twitter and all the different platforms now where people just rattle off hateful and um, spiteful words and slanderous things. That's the culture we live in. As we consider last Sunday, we live in a world of that literally breathes out violence, as David describes it. And that violence is just being uttered and amplified with every new social media platform and every communication tool that comes along. Tools that in and of themselves are helpful, but in the hands of a corrupt humanity is used for all manner of evil speech. And one of the most familiar or common types of evil speech that is thrown up against any idea of God in Christ as Jesus as being the Christ, as, as the Bible being true, is a misuse of Scripture. And I was reminded in this conversation this past week, this man was bemoaning the fact that, that he has friends that, that send him Bible verses out of nowhere and, and mock him for having a semblance of faith in the Bible and, and just mocking the Bible and mocking the, the Bible as being true and taking individual verses out of context and then hurling them at various individuals and saying, see, gotcha, you're false, you're a hypocrite, or, or the word is false, the word is not true. It's a misuse of scripture. It's one of the most common forms of evil speech in our day. And we find here in Matthew chapter 22 that in the third assault that the enemies of Jesus brought against him, this is their tactic. Their tactic is in this third assault to to catch Jesus, to to test him. The, The text says that the Pharisees desiring that they might test Jesus, verse 35, testing him. They don't really want to know what Jesus's answer is. They They want to come to Jesus with a biblical question that will force Jesus to be exposed as as caught with the the difficulties of Scripture and, and that his authority, supposed, according to the Pharisees, supposed authority, would be brought down in the eyes of the people. The Pharisees are the third group to come at Jesus, although they were involved in the first assault. Look at verse 15 of chapter 22. The Pharisees went, plotted together how they might trap him. Verse 16, they sent their disciples. So in the first verbal assault against Jesus, as he's in the temple grounds in the last week of his life before he's crucified, they, the Pharisees don't go themselves. They ask some of their sympathizers and they actually combine with the the followers of Herod as we saw and they go to Jesus first and they present to Jesus the issue about whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus answers the question saying give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and verse 21 the things to God that are God's. He he masterfully answers that first verbal assault. In the second assault in verse 23 the Sadducees who 
were another religious party in Israel at that time. They were uh, at odds with the Pharisees, but they were part of the religious elite. They had come to Jesus as those who did not believe in the resurrection with a hypothetical situation about an issue of divorce and remarriage. I'm sorry, not divorce and remarriage, death and remarriage. And um, Jesus answers the question masterfully and shares with shows them that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. There is, in fact, resurrection. So the Sadducees are silenced. And that's what the Pharisees in verse 34 hear. I mean, if the Sadducees have been silenced, somebody has got to do something. And the Pharisees now well, are thinking, we've got to take matters into our own hands. We're not going to send our disciples. We're not going to send those servants of Herod. And those Sadducees haven't been, to handle, been able to handle this Jesus. So I guess we've got to do it. So they... they look around and they assess that the best one to catch Jesus in his words and to expose him as a fraud and to take him down would be an an expert in the law. Now the Pharisees were considered all of them to be experts in the law. They were law specialists. They had discerned that in the Bible, the law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament, that there were, in fact, 613 specific laws, 613 different express commands. And they knew them all. They specialized in those. And then they, of course, were known for adding to those 613 many, many untold laws of their own making, all purportedly in an effort to to encourage obedience to the law of God. But they were frauds. They were hypocrites. They possessed the law of Moses and they possessed the writings of the prophets, but they possessed no love for God. They did not love the God who gave the law and the prophets. And so they missed the most obvious and foremost purpose of the law. Do you know what that was? We often think of what Paul says about the law condemns. Yes, it, it, uh, it does expose us as sinners. It, it does. But that wasn't its foremost purpose. Integral in the plan of God, designed that way. But it was given to instruct a God-fearing man or woman how he or she might live a life of love unto God. That's what the law was about. Deuteronomy 6, the very passage that Jesus will quote from in his response to the question, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, there Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. As an aside, So many evangelical Christians today automatically assume that the Old Testament is onerous and and law and lacking grace. 
But we've already learned from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that he said, do not think that I came to abolish the law. The law, as given by God, was and is good and perfect and holy. And listen very carefully. It's a law of love. It's the law of love given by the God who is love to people so that they might know how to live a life of love unto him. The problem with the law wasn't the law. The problem with the law, and still to this day, by nature, is those who hear the law. Our hearts. Our hearts, by nature, are corrupt and do not love God. In fact, we hate God. And so that's why our, we struggle so with the law of God. But it was... Firstly, about love. The Pharisees perverted and twisted the law of God into a system not of love of God, but of self-love. They they took what had been given by God and by their fastidious external compliance to the details of the law, they Love the idea that they could tell themselves that they were righteous and that they could exalt themselves in the eyes of the people. Turn over to chapter 23, verse 6. Next Sunday, we'll look more at length at this passage, but Jesus is going to rebuke the Pharisees. And in chapter 23, verse 6, he says about the Pharisees, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. Back up to verse 5. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. The Pharisees supposed love for and adherence to the law was nothing more than an expression of self-love. They loved themselves. They didn't love God. They perverted and used the law of God for their own selfish, corrupt purposes. They hated God, and in turn then, they hated God's Son. Because God's Son incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, threatened to expose their religious hypocrisy. And so their strategy, as we began to examine was to choose from among themselves an expert in the law, an expert among experts, a scribe, we're told in Mark's gospel. Matthew calls him a lawyer. In other words, an expert in the law. And this isn't common law. This isn't government law. This isn't personal law. This is the law of God. This man's life's work was to understand the entirety of what we would call the Old Testament. We don't know this man, his name, but we know that among those who have studied God's law, he was chief. If not chief, he was one of the foremost. Things are serious. The Pharisees are going to send in their best And this man had devoted his life. Now think about it for a minute. 
his very body may have betrayed the fact that he was an expert in the law of God. You say, how so? There's no swivel chairs. There's no such thing as ergonomic furniture. I have a stand-up desk because for years my back was so bad and I find it helpful to sit and stand. I I doubt he has a stand-up desk. Probably not an adjustable seat that goes up and down. He doesn't have a, a little book, a nice copy of God's word. He's got a huge scroll in the local synagogue where there's probably really bad lighting. So his whole body, his whole, his whole life has been one, and, and as described, he literally would have copied the law. His, how would they do that? We have some, some idea that, that these men, the only way that they did that was actually kind of sitting down, hunched up, bent over and looking down. And so it may have been that his actual body was, you said, there goes a scribe. Because day after day after day, year after year after year, this man has been bent to the book. He knows it. And everybody else knows he knows it. That is the law of God and the prophets. His mind was full of the text He poured over it all. And so the Pharisees assume this is their man. This upstart from Nazareth, this wannabe king, Messiah, Jesus, he'll be no match for this man who maybe they think of having the equivalent of four PhDs. All somehow related to the law of God. They're sending forth their greatest champion to take down this Jesus. So, what is the tactic? The man who we do not know, on behalf of the Pharisees, goes to Jesus and in verse 36 asks the question. Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, rabbi, Which is the great commandment in the law? Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? It's a simple question to us. I mean, we might be, if apart from our being familiar with this passage, we might be stretched a little bit to think about it. But in this context, always this question loaded. Because the Pharisees remember 613 different laws in the Old Testament. And, and whether you want to say that it's 613 more or less, they were accurate in saying that the Old Testament is full of different commands and laws from God. No denying that. But which is the greatest? Oh, that, that's, a, that's a tricky question. That's one of those questions that like an ordination council that that is the impossible to answer question. We often think of it like divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. Ooh, there's a tricky one. This is like that. They're thinking, because not only are the Pharisees experts in the law, but think about it. The entire society is shaped by the law. We, we really can't relate to this. We have laws But our lives are not literally shaped every day by a certain understanding of the Old Testament. 
It was a wrong understanding. It was a man-made understanding and system imposed by the Pharisees. And Jesus will describe it as like a burden upon the people. But nonetheless, they had been successful. And so that the general populace, they, they couldn't escape the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. And so to ask which is the greatest commandment is, is like the explosive question. And it's, it's, it's would be considered to some impossible to answer. The Pharisees debated this and, and they would want to qualify it and they would want to go back and forth. This will catch Jesus, surely. It'll expose Jesus to disagreement. It, he'll, he'll be looked at by some as maybe some will like his answer, but others will, will criticize his answer. It's an impossible question. It's kind of like those who will take scripture and, and just throw it out there out of context and think there's no intention to actually ask a question or to raise a point. It's just using scripture to attempt to expose the weakness of, of the professing Christian. It's assumed that the question is unanswerable. Can't, you'll be, Jesus will be caught in an impossible situation with an unanswerable question. Which is the greatest commandment? The question is loaded. The crowd, remember, is large. This isn't a private venue. The setting is explosive. The very temple courts, which is the epicenter of adherence to the law of God, The stakes could not be higher. So what is Jesus' answer? Well, before we look at the specifics of the answer, notice how Jesus answers. Jesus does not hesitate. The question is in verse 36. There's no indication of taking time. There's no running to look at the computer to to quick look up a reference that Jesus can't remember. There's no prelude. There's There's no lengthy introduction. He does not equivocate. He does not qualify. He simply, with authority in the very presence of the temple, the holy place, states the answer direct and without without flinching. I mean, I can, obviously we don't know exactly how it transpired, but large crowd, there is our Lord standing there and he's been teaching the people about the kingdom of God, this, this expert of experts sent by the Pharisees to take Jesus down to test him asks him the question, looks at him, says, Rabbi, listen to the question. And I don't know, but I picture Jesus not even ever directing his eyes anywhere else, directing his eyes right at the man, looking into his soul and saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Wow. It's quiet kind of like it is right now. With absolute confidence and authority, 
Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's a powerful moment. There's a lot going on in this rather simple question, this answer. Jesus demonstrates here that he is, in fact, the godly blessed man that David describes in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 say, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That describes Jesus. You have to understand this. As a man, Jesus loved the Old Testament. He is the author with the Father of the Old Testament, but as the Son of God incarnate, Truly God, truly man, pertaining to his manhood, since he was a boy, Jesus studied this book. And yes, did he have to study? Yes. Kids, sometimes you think that Jesus had it easy because he just knew everything because he was God. He is God. But do you know when Jesus was a little boy? Guess what? He had to go to school too. He really did. And he really had to memorize, and he really had to study and go over it. Now, he had, a, he had a good mind. His body and his mind were not corrupted by sin, but he still had to study. And as a young man, as a teenager, as a, as a man in his 20s, he had occupation, he had chores, but his life's work was at heart to know and to understand and to love and to meditate and muse upon the law of God and the prophets as given by his heavenly father. He is the blessed man whose delight, delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. It's easy for Jesus. It's easy for Jesus to answer, not firstly because he is divine. It is easy for Jesus to answer because pertaining to his human nature, he, he loves what we call the Old Testament. It's in his blood. It pours out of him. It's part of his being because he has meditated upon it, memorized it, loved it, sung it, prayed it. And we saw that all the way back in Matthew chapter 4 in his interaction with, with Satan. It was, it was rather easy for Jesus, even in the weakness of, of being 40 days without food or water, to respond with scripture because it was so in him. Jesus is the true master of the word. He's the giver of the word, but he's also the master. He is the one who is blessed. He is the blessed godly man, fulfilling Psalm 1. But not only does Jesus' answer reveal who he is, it once again exposes who those who assault him, who they are. 
They don't love God. They would rather have a debate about this question than state the simple, plain truth. They do not love God with all their heart. They do not love God with all their soul, and they do not love God with their minds. Their supposed adherence to the law is nothing more than heartless, soulless, mindless charade. And we do well here to pause for a moment. And I think maybe we'll go not much further this morning before we come to the Lord's table. There's a pastoral application here. It's, it's not the main point of the text. The main point of the passage is again to show us who our Lord is. That he's not only unassailable, as we saw last week, but that, let me put it this way, you don't want to mess with Jesus. There's not going to be anyone in the last day who brings forward a Bible verse to Jesus on the day of judgment and says, oh, but Lord, you said in your Bible, in the word, you said this. Well, how about that? As though God is going to be in a conundrum, as though Jesus is going to be like, hmm, I hadn't thought of that. And that's how so many people think. And even professing Christians reason away sin, thinking that, well, it's not clear. It's hard to understand. And maybe they don't say it bluntly, but basically they infer that God did actually a pretty poor job when he gave his word. God does not agree. And you do not want to play, interpret the Bible with Jesus. If your intent is to somehow undermine its integrity, its simplicity, its perspicuity and clarity, if you want to suggest that the word is hard to understand and therefore hard to obey, you don't want to go to Jesus about that because he will not agree with you. He will say something like he said to the Pharisees, have you not read? (laughs) Did you not see what was right on the surface? You shall love the Lord your God. Is that hard to understand? No. So we need to be humbled. And all the naysayers need to be humbled. And if we find in our heart this morning that kind of cynical heart, that kind of heart that questions God, that wants to suggest, well, you know, nobody can really understand it. We need to tell ourselves our own heart this morning. And I say this again with respect, but sometimes you just got to say something bluntly. There's a time when we need to say to our proud heart, shut up. When we find in our heart that kind of unbelief and that kind of cynicism and we pick it up from the world... It's time to pipe down. It's time to be quiet in the presence of God. The word of God is clear. And if we do not tend to our own heart, we may find, like the Pharisees found on that day, ourselves being silenced by Christ. God forbid. But I said there was a pastoral application And one is to check our hearts and see that there be no pride in us. Certainly, we want to recognize our Lord and Savior. But is there not also here a command, a call rather, to examine our hearts? And it's just one big question that's in the air. 
Do we love God? Do we love God? Whatever else we got going on in our lives, whatever questions we may have, do we love God? Do we want to love God? Do we want to love God? In all our reading the Bible and listening to the Bible, do we consider what Jesus says here is the point to love God? Is that why we came to church this morning? Is that why we're singing? Is that why we're learning to know God and know how to love him more? To please him, to know how to rightly express our love for him in our daily living. The name of our church is Reformation Bible Church. And, and by that, we primarily mean simply that we want to be constantly reforming, reshaping our thoughts and our minds and our lives according to the word of God. It's really what we primarily mean by it. But if our reformation does not have at its heart more love for God, then do you see how our reformation is no biblical reformation, whatever else it may be? I believe firmly in the doctrines of grace. I, I'm not ashamed to identify with the Protestant Reformation and those great truths concerning the sovereignty of God and, and all these great doctrines. But dear ones, our Lord is calling us this morning through his word, calling us back to this simple truth that the point of all of this, the point of it all, is that we might love God love him and none of us loves him as we ought we know that but we can love him as God gives us a new heart as we're born of the spirit of God as we profess faith in Jesus Christ yeah we can love the one who loved us that when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with his son. We can love the one who made us and gave us life and breath, who is the giver of every good gift we have ever tasted. We can love the one who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, who bought us with the precious blood of his son the one who has adopted us as sons and daughters, who has made us to be priests, to be those who will reign in the kingdom to come, the one who has prepared for us a place and ultimately a new heavens and a new earth where he will lavish on us his grace, the unfathomable riches in Jesus Christ. Yeah, we can love someone like that, can't we? We can love a God like that. This is our God. So may God grant that we love him with all that we are. It's understandable that we have our work, our job, and we have to give our, our heart to it, our soul, our mind. We understand that. There's people in our lives that if we're going to be in the relationship, that we need to, we need to pay attention, we need to be there and give ourselves. But above all, dear ones, we are here to love God. Love him. And it's not impossible to love him. For a believer, in fact, that is your nature. 
Peter's able to say, though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. I didn't hear him write it with that tone, but that's kind of what he's saying. Yeah, you, you have not seen him, but oh, you love him. You got to admit it. Jesus, who died for you, God worked in your heart so that as sinful as you are, as selfish as you continue to be, you, if you're a true believer, you can't deny that when it really comes down to it, you love Jesus Christ. You may have forgotten it, but you do. So may God grant that we love him with all our mind, our soul, all our heart. And as we come to the Lord's table now, what an opportunity to be reminded of God's love for us and to renew our love for him. This is a Lord's Supper is a time when as a church family we come together and we, we do what Jesus commanded us to, which was to eat bread and, and drink grape juice, wine. It's, it's red. It's symbolizing the blood of Christ so that we might remember his covenant love for us but also that we might have an opportunity to renew our covenant love for him. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I'm so glad you're here. We truly are glad you're here. We, we want people to come and to listen and to learn. And maybe you have questions and we would love to talk to you more. But if you have yet to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord for the forgiveness of your sins, you just want to let this bread and this grape juice go by because it it represents the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ it's not the actual body and blood we don't believe that it somehow turns into the body and blood of Christ but it represents the body and the blood of God's own incarnate son this is serious and so we want to caution don't take of it lightly That's true not only for those who have not trusted in Christ, but that's also true for us who have trusted in Christ. Maybe this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper and we weren't expecting this, but we know before God and the Holy Spirit has convicted us of something that we need to turn from because it's certainly not an expression of love to God. Maybe this morning we have to confess that we have loved someone or something more than God and it's really spiritual adultery. So this is a moment for us to really make a decision. Oh God, based upon your grace and your love towards me in Christ, I am renewing by your grace my love for you this morning. Oh God, I love you. And help me to love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind. May it be so. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity this morning to consider the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ and and what a champion he is and how all enemies will be silenced in the end. All naysayers, all objectors to your truth and to your word will be silenced. We pray that you would forgive us for every thought we've had of your word that is low, that is unbecoming, thinking that it's somehow confusing when the things that are plain are clear and foremost among them is that we are to love you. 
Forgive us for our little love. And grant, O God, even now as we come to your table, that we love you more. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, may we rejoice this morning as your people in your love. We are so thankful that you loved us first, not because we loved you, but when we hated you, you loved us. So we thank you that this time is a time of grace, a time of receiving again a reminder of your lavish grace in the Lord Jesus. But help us as we partake to renew our love for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.